You Are Never Alone, The Power of White Magic, by J. O. DeVries. Chapter 1. Life is a Series of Tests. Are you up to the challenge? Ella Wheeler Wilcox wrote, It is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows by like a song, but the man worthwhile is the one who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. I have learned so much since my first book, and yet have so much still to learn. We think we're so smart, but the more I study humans, the more I realize just how foolish we really are, or have allowed ourselves to become. I believe it is best to approach life, regardless of our age, like a child. We can learn so much more if we have an open mind, constantly questioning and developing through the assessment of this amazing world around us. We have lost the dynamics that children possess. Their questions and opinions burst out with authentic, unfiltered innocence. They are genuine truth-seekers, wanting to know why on earth we do the things we do. I'm older and wiser now, listening to advice, but taking none unless I have seen favorable results from those who are not just giving it, but living it. I'm learning from those who have achieved what I believe to be the ultimate goal. I'm not looking to those who have financial success or hold a position of power. I'm interested in the people who have true inner peace. Regardless of their situation or surrounding conditions, they are solid. They bloom where they are planted. They understand and accept that trials are a part of life, that life is a series of tests. They are determined to see a bright side and possibly even an opportunity in the problems before them. There is a light inside them that cannot be extinguished. Even after they're dead, that light shines on through the telling of their story, struggles and all. My conclusion thus far in life is that there is nothing more important than that light. The intent of this book is to bring that light to those threatened to drown in the surrounding darkness of this world, to share the secrets that keep me sane when my world gets too crazy, to point others to the correct information concerning the meaning of life and the reason why we should never give up hope. At first, I started handing out copies of the Bible, but something didn't feel right. Everything everyone needs to know about the meaning of life is in the Bible, but just handing one to someone on the street just felt, well, stupid. I want to promote the Bible, but it is not enough to say, read it, you're going to love it. People will not love it. At least, it's not likely that they will love it at first, if ever. I want everyone to know just how exciting the Bible really is. We have the opportunity to communicate with the creator of the universe, to interact with the spiritual realm, to have peace on earth amidst everything around us, and to have life after death, to experience things on a whole new level. The Bible includes the accounts of many humans who interacted with God, or Jesus, or angels, and their stories are incredible. There was an awful lot of suffering, and many died a tragic death, but man, did they witness some cool stuff along the way. What's even better is that we are all invited to write our own story. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we read, Happy are those conscious of their spiritual need, since the kingdom of the heavens belongs to them. Within the pages of the Bible are the most amazing accounts of people witnessing the power of God. It's full of exciting true stories that include talking animals, giants, magical plants, freaky beasts, and even a dragon. Unfortunately, he's not a good dragon. They rarely are. Everyone wants to believe that magic exists, but we have been led to believe otherwise. Somehow, we have been taught that the word magic can only apply to black, stage, or close-up magic. Where's the white magic? Why aren't we talking about it? Why is it unacceptable to use the word magic in relation to God? On many occasions I have prayed and opened the Bible to the exact message that I or others needed to hear. That's nothing less than the supernatural at work. There most certainly is an arch-enemy of all black magic, evil, and cruelty on this planet. The stuff that happened in the Bible wasn't fiction. It's the truth. The Bible is a book about the ultimate superhero, God, and all the amazing stuff he can do white magic. A spiritual realm exists. Whether you believe it or not, it still exists. Just like the wind, you can't see it, but you can see what it does. Or you can choose not to see, like the dwarfs in Narnia. You have a choice. We all have a choice. I've witnessed innumerable miracles involving power, which was not mine, nor anyone else's on this planet. I've heard words said, seen situations develop and events unfold that were too amazing and too precise to be coincidences. It's not something scary. It's reassuring and encouraging. Also like the wind, no one can predict exactly where it will be, but it's always active somewhere in the world. When we are feeling overwhelmed, we are promised help will come to those who ask for it. The help doesn't always come in the form we expect. God decides how. Nor always within our time limit. God decides when. But if you've ever seen something good come out of something bad, you know that it's important to weather the storm. That's called faith. Believing that there is more to life than what we can see. Faith is believing that supernatural power exists. The only unforgivable sin in the Bible is to deny or speak against God's Holy Spirit, to deny the power of God. We read that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, and in Mark chapter 3, verse 29. To me, that's just another way of saying the only unforgivable sin is to say white magic does not exist. I was brought up believing the Bible is fact, a collection of documents of events that actually happened. Crazy as it sounds, it just didn't seem that impossible. There are so many extraordinary things happening on this planet all the time, since the beginning, when God said, let it be, and bang, it was so. It's incredibly eye-opening to research the many unbelievable people, places, things, and happenings on this planet, now and in the past. And even in our daily lives, we continually take things for granted. But that doesn't mean that they aren't downright astonishing. 
we live in an unbelievably magical world where we can witness the transformation of a really gross caterpillar struggling to cover a foot of ground into a beautiful moth, or better yet, a gorgeous butterfly whose itinerary includes flying to Mexico. Just how crazy is that? We can behold the awesome development of a liquid egg into a peeping quail chick in only 18 days. It's remarkable how a tiny chick can be tucked so tightly inside its shell and yet have the strength to make its way out at exactly the right time. The way a hatchling can support its monstrous bug-eyed head on its skinny wrinkle of a neck. The fact that a female hatchling will be capable of laying an egg of its own in just six or seven weeks. Then there's the miraculous experiences we've heard of, people surviving things they shouldn't have, stories of the unbelievable but true. It's all so magical. If what we can see is so utterly amazing, imagine what we can't see. So of course I believe all that cool stuff in the Bible and want to take part in the second round of life that it describes. I certainly haven't heard of a better option. Other people ask, if there is a God, why would he let things get so bad and let so many innocent people suffer so terribly? That was always their biggest problem with God. I never understood that question. Why would he let it happen? Why wouldn't he? God lets life unfold, the good and the bad. Letting things play out does not make one guilty of the outcome. God is just giving us our own space. He's examining the progress, if you can call it that, of mankind over the ages, as individuals and as societies. Humans have been examining the lives and social interactions of animals for many years. Unfortunately, there are some nasty realities in the harsh, competitive, natural world. Most animals in their native habitat risk injury and death on a daily basis. The food chain and the pecking order are undeniable, usually ugly, truths. The alpha female hyena pup is known to kill her female siblings as soon as she is able, thus securing her position. Suffering and death are part of the circle of life. Round one is not pretty. Should we as humans, having the ability to step in and stop animals from fighting and killing each other, do just that? Step in? Or should we let the animals work things out amongst themselves in their own way, in order to fully understand what their own way actually is? Are we wrong for not stepping in? Of course not. If we are free of guilt concerning how the animals behave, why would we blame God for how humans behave? Why would we not apply the very same sound reasoning? Perhaps God just wants to make us understand, through undeniable evidence, what the behavior of a human naturally is. Without God, that is. For we were given the chance to experience life with God, physically walking alongside him. Instead, Adam and Eve and the majority of humans ever since, have chosen to go through life on their own, thank you very much. 
Once we take that fact into consideration, is God wrong for not stepping in when we think he should? The very idea is absurd. God owes us nothing. We can't blame God for what humans have done, and it's not God's job to stop humans from hurting other humans. That's our job. God gave us free will. He has given us laws to live by and told us how to behave, but he does not force us to behave. We are not puppets, and he is not a puppeteer. There are no strings attached, only a lifeline. God has given us just enough rope to hang ourselves, and some have chosen to use that rope to hang others as well. God knows precisely when to step in and when to sit back and let people prove who they really are and the depth of evil that they will sink to. Then God watches to see how the humans will deal with the offender and the victim and their families. Not just the families of the victims, but the families of the perpetrators, which is part of the equation that is rarely addressed. We are responsible for how our families and the social groups that we are part of operate, not God. The problem is that most people are downtrodden, made to think they are less. They are weakened emotionally and spiritually by the bullies and deceivers in this world. They are afraid to take a stand, wondering what would happen if someone did do something. Using others' lack of empathy and bravery as an excuse for their own. How very easy it is to influence, manipulate, and control the majority of human beings. They are weak, or have been weakened. They are afraid, afraid of what might happen. They may complain behind closed doors, but they will often stay in a lousy relationship, job, or situation and follow the direction given nonetheless. They organize themselves in groups, believing the answer lies in numbers, perhaps on street corners. They shout themselves hoarse, wave signs, picket, protest, and strike, affecting traffic and the general population, but having little effect on their target. These are proceedings born of frustration, not power, helplessness, not hope. We all have choices to make, and we are living with the consequences of those choices. Humans are to blame for the condition of life on earth, not God. But we have been influenced in our decision-making. We have been led down the path we have walked, by others. Who have you been following? The masses? If so, you're headed for trouble. I feel sorry for the naive, the countless sheep being led to the slaughter. I want to help. I want to help you to help yourself. I want to empower you by letting you know that you have opportunity galore. You have the prospect of witnessing the power of God and the changes that he can make when freedom, independence, justice, and quality of life are at stake. Our Creator made us to be free. He does not like puppet masters. God is not just sitting back with his eyes closed and letting things happen. He is documenting everything and performing miracles every day on our behalf. We only see part of the picture. There's an awful lot more going on behind the scenes. 
when someone seemingly gets away with harmful behavior and we feel so utterly helpless, frustrated, and angry, it's imperative that we remember God knows people's every move and he will deal with them. God has given us free will, which means humans are truly free to make their own choices. Satan has made sure that there are more attractive alternatives than the uphill path that God has set before us. Going downhill is always easier. God has warned us there are lies to uncover and consequences for not doing so. We are the student, God is the teacher, and the Bible is the manual for those wanting to know the truth about life on this planet. The Bible could be called Humans, Their Purpose and Potential Within the Bigger Picture. Some people don't like the Bible because of all the violence it contains. The many writers of the books in the Bible were simply recording the events that happened. Yet somehow the written material is considered offensive to some. Does that make any sense? The dark side has been part of the story since the beginning, ever since free will existed. The Bible is much more than knowing that God has the whole world in his hands and that Jesus loves us. It's about spiritual warfare, the fight between good and evil, the basis of any great story. Recently, I've had to take my own advice and lean upon the encouragement written in the Bible even more than usual. I'm finding myself challenged to remain positive through the tests I've been given. If you are going to undertake the task of helping to free people from their limitations by pointing them to God, then you are up for a battle. During the writing of this book, I faced an unusual amount of trials. They've probably just begun. Besides my existing fibromyalgia or Lyme disease, depending on who you talk to, doctors or healers, a lot of deception has come to light. Some of my closest friends, relatives, and mentors have shown their true colors. As a result, I have ended a number of long-time relationships with people who, despite their profession of love, proved otherwise. Of course this was upsetting and frustrating at the time, but I would always rather know the truth. It doesn't end up hurting that badly if the end result is that we are living healthier spiritual lives based on truth. The truth does set us free. It allows us to move forward, smarter, stronger, and better. I believe we are witnessing the separating of the wheat from the chaff. Many secrets and lies are being exposed, even globally. Good. The cleansing has begun. We are encouraged to pray for those who are causing problems for us, to be kind towards all. God set the example by being sympathetic to the ungrateful and the wicked. We hope that they will change, even though we know that most of them likely will not. That's not our problem. It's important to understand what exactly is asked of us. I've spent too much time in my life trying to help fix people and work on relationships. The Bible tells us that most people aren't awake, not really. They have eyes, but they can't see, and ears, but they can't hear. There is no point in diving into deep conversation with shallow people. Saying things repeatedly or louder will not give you the results you want. When people are not listening, move on. God will open the eyes of the people who respond to the voice of truth. He knows their heart. It seems to be based on who really wants to know the truth 
and who doesn't. Most don't. Heaven knows, teaching children who don't want to learn is a big, frustrating waste of time. God was ready to drown the whole lot of us by the sixth chapter of Genesis. We are really lucky he decided to save eight of us. So enough already. I need to focus on my life and work on improving me. I want to help those who really need the help and who are putting great effort into helping themselves, making sure others aren't just dragging me down, because I swear sometimes that is their intent. I've spent far too much time on stupid, time-wasting distractions. These distractions usually come packaged in human form, with surprises hidden inside. We are allowed to get angry when things of a serious nature upset us. It's a normal reaction. But raging, continuing in a negative mindset, or allowing our mind to continually return to those thoughts only hurts us more. There is only so much room in my head, and I don't need negative thoughts taking up space. We need to remember this when people are cruel to us. They are creating evidence against themselves before God. Who would you rather be, the victim or the perpetrator? I would rather be hurt than be the one guilty of abuse. I would rather be stolen from than be the one doing the stealing. What goes around comes around. I know that justice will be done at some point. Besides, God tells us that we must not take vengeance against our enemies. We are to hand them over to him. Romans 12, 17-21 Sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes we think we want to see people suffer for the suffering they've caused. But feeling good about someone else's suffering is not a good thing. It is not from God. Harboring anger is keeping darkness inside of you, and you will suffer side effects. Stress and lack of sleep are silent killers. Demon possession is also pretty tough on the system. Don't let other people's darkness cast a shadow on your light. One single human's behavior can affect a great many others, if allowed to. We need to hand darkness over to God. So, I have given these people to God. He will deal with them, and I will sleep well. We have been offered hope and support, not by just anyone, but by the ultimate one, the one who knows you inside and out, the one who knows everyone inside and out. He knows everything you've ever done, and what you are dealing with right now. When it all gets to be too much, we are told to give God our burdens and he will get us through. I believe it. I've lived it. I've witnessed it. God will take vengeance. He may be making them pay right now. You don't know. In fact, it's not your concern. I love the way C.S. Lewis explained it in his Narnia series. Aslan repeatedly says, that is someone else's story which basically means it's none of your business. Good. One less thing to think about. It's not what has happened to us that's important. The question is, how did we deal with it? Two people can suffer the same situation. One might grow stronger and one might crumble. We are to treat our problems as challenges, learn from our mistakes, and make positive changes because of them. We all mess up. Don't be dragged down by guilt or regret. Don't give up. When we know that life is full of trials and temptations, and that a spiritual realm is there for support, with forgiveness for the asking, 
we live it with more determination to keep forging ahead. If there's an out-of-this-world prize for endurance, we can put up with much more than we originally thought. God never allows us to be given more than we can take, because when we are overwhelmed, he expects us to ask for his help. That's when we begin to witness miracles. When things are out of our hands, we can ask God to put his hand on the situation and know that he will. An important part of staying positive is the practice of counting one's blessings. Complaining is a waste of time, not to mention draining on everyone else. Life is full of ups and downs. That's just the way it is. If you have clean water, food, a place to call home, and general good health, then you have much more than most. It is usually those who are the most spoiled who do the most complaining. We need to count our blessings when things are going well, and even when they're not. There's always something to be thankful for. If you're so down and out that you have no blessings, then I imagine you're lying in a bed, can't walk, can't sit up, can't talk, and can't eat. But even then, you can still pray. When you pray, you're praying to the most powerful force in the universe. Think about that. If you can pray, you have a huge blessing. God is about to show you how he can use your situation, regardless of your state, to his advantage. He can give you the opportunity to help the people around you. You have the ability to make remarkable changes as a result of righteous prayer, prayer with pure intention. And God has the power to use your circumstances to bring someone closer to him. Maybe you. Maybe others who are watching you, watching to see how you will handle the various trials you are facing. Look at Helen Keller and the obstacles she overcame and the changes it made in other people's lives by either helping her, watching her, or even just reading about her triumphs. Despite Helen's monumental challenges, she concluded, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Helen didn't just have light inside her, she had fire. Helen inspired countless others. It's important, sometimes vital, to focus on what we can do instead of what we can't. Praying is so powerful Yet those of us who can walk, talk, and eat are usually too busy stuffing our faces or complaining about our lot in life to do so. We need to smarten up and quit our whining. Sometimes we are confronted by major, unexpected changes in our lives. On occasion, God brings us to an abrupt halt, giving us the opportunity to rethink things. At times, when we are out of line, God disciplines us. No one likes to be disciplined. I've received a few God slaps, and it's not fun, and usually very embarrassing. Discipline is for our own good. Discipline is evidence of love. Someone has chosen to put effort into nurturing the development of a respectable individual, a person people want to be around. An undisciplined child, adult or dog for that matter, is a pain in the neck to everyone. People who behave terribly or haven't disciplined their children or dogs usually make lousy neighbors and often make gatherings and public life in general less enjoyable. They are breaking an important commandment, the foundation of positive human interaction, 
love your neighbor. Matthew 22, verse 39. God commands us to treat others with respect, the way we want to be treated. This would include keeping one's music turned down, and not just between the legal time limits. It includes not allowing one's animals to bother anyone or to leave one's property. Nobody wants to listen to your dog bark or discover that your cat pooped in their garden. It also includes not leaving one's garbage around for others to have to look at, smell, or have to deal with. Any type of pollution, including noise and visual pollution, is evidence of one's disrespect for God's beautiful planet and all of his other creatures that occupy it. God has shown us his love by giving us guidelines for our lives. He will discipline us when need be because he is our adopted father and he doesn't want his children looking like idiots. If you are undergoing severe challenges, then you must be special. You have been chosen to be tested beyond the average person. You must have qualities that few people have. Those who have suffered more in round one have more to celebrate when their test is finally over. You're going to get a honkin' big crown if you get into round two. Of course, there's always the chance that you're just a great big jerk and God is giving you what you deserve. It's not too late to change, but at some point, it will be. That's because at some point we will die, and then our test is over. This was not the original plan, but humans have a hard time following instructions. We messed up plan A. We are on plan B. So yes, in this first round of life, we die. I'll die. You'll die. Our grandparents and parents will die. So will our children and grandchildren. The death of someone close is very challenging for those left behind. The strength of their belief system, their faith, is being tested. But we have the time right now to help lessen the grief, to make things a bit easier for those we leave behind. We can help prepare our loved ones for the future, no matter what it brings. We can lead them to the source of inner peace. We can introduce them to God, the Bible, and the promises written within it. The first thing we need to accept is that we all die. We don't have any idea how much time we have left on this earth, so we need to use our time well. We must squeeze every bit of juice out of this opportunity called life. Death is not nearly as sad as a life that was spent simply running the rat race, failing to live to one's full potential. The best night's sleep comes after knowing we did the best we could with the time we had. God has given us written documentation that he wants us to discover an ocean of opportunity for true inner peace in our lives, surrounded by warm beaches of comfort and rest when we die. We need to share that good news with everyone. The second is to look at the information we have concerning death. Some have died and come back, expressing that they felt at peace during their experience. Death, it seems, is not so bad. The movie Miracles from Heaven with Jennifer Garner is the true story of a child, Annabelle Beam, who briefly visited heaven after an incredibly difficult struggle on earth. It's a must-see for people of all ages. It's a real tearjerker, but the ending is worth it. The movie depicts the many heart-wrenching trials the Beam family had to endure, 
a traumatic test no one was expecting, and ends with some genuine white magic. It also gives evidence of the crucial importance of sharing our faith with others, and some of the responses we can expect when doing so. The movie brings to light the acts of love and compassion carried out by individuals outside of their church, and the judgment and criticism given from certain members within. It's a well-balanced, honest testimony, conveying both the benefits and the hardships of being a Christian, and of simply being human. It inspires us to keep believing, even when the problem in front of us seems absolutely 100% impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. He loves those odds best. If we truly believe that the afterlife is exceptional, then losing a loved one to it should offer at least some comfort. If we are the one dying, then leaving behind those we took care of is the hardest. But do you honestly believe that God won't take care of things? My son is one of God's children. When I die, God himself will be looking out for Jordan, and I can have no greater comfort than that. It does not mean that Jordan won't suffer. It means that Jordan will know that he has his Heavenly Father with him through his trials, and that's the best I can do as a parent. I have no fear of death itself. My only concern in earlier years was for my son because I was a single mother. I taught Jordan from an early age about God and about death. He knew he would live with Sarah and Lorne in the village. They were our closest family of God relatives, should anything unexpected happen to me. But I assured him that situation was unlikely to happen. I'd hate to have my child left in total shock should I die suddenly. Life is tough enough as it is. Our number one job as parents is to take care of our children, which includes preparing them for life. How can we do that without preparing them for death, knowing that the two are inseparable? I didn't have a problem discussing death with Jordan, so he was comfortable talking about it as well. Maybe he was just a bit too comfortable. When Jordan was four years old, we went to a public pool for a swim. The girl behind the desk asked if we had a family pass, and then smiled at him. Jordan shrugged and simply said, No, my dad's dead. I had the hardest time trying not to laugh. It must have shown. The girl looked horrified. I paid, went around the corner, and squatted down and looked into Jordan's clear blue eyes. I doubt he could interpret the tears in mine. I took a deep breath. Jordan, your dad isn't dead. We just don't know where he is. But that's okay. He's around somewhere, and it doesn't matter anyway. He's not a good guy. We're better off without him. I told you this when you were younger, but I guess you didn't remember. Everything's okay. Let's go swimming. Jordan smiled. In a way, Jordan had it right. God explains in many places in the scriptures that to be spiritually dead is to be dead. We pray for them, then continue on our path. They are not part of our lives. We want to hang out with the living, not deadbeats. When Jordan had finished high school, had moved out, and was working in Ottawa, he phoned me one Mother's Day. I asked him if he could remember the most important thing I had taught him. I waited for an answer. All quiet on the other end. I swallowed. All quiet. And then finally he answered, that, that I'm never alone. 
Relief swept over me like the biggest hug possible, from God. That's right, I said. You are never alone. That's the most important thought we can leave our loved ones with. Hearing about other people's problems helps put mine into perspective. There is always someone else worse off. When I'm going through a rough time, I remember that life is a test and that God is watching me to see how I'm going to handle things. I turn to the story in the Bible of a man named Job who suffered terribly and am reminded of the reason he was suffering. The book of Job provided the evidence from which I justified my conclusion. Round one of life is a test round. I wish everyone could know Job's story. I think there would be a lot less complaining. I believe it is one of the most important books in the Bible. The book of Job is a long, drawn-out one. That's one of the tests. So now I just read the most important and exciting parts, the beginning and the end, the conversations between Satan and God and God and Job. Satan had taunted God, saying that Job was only a faithful follower because God had blessed him in life. Job was very wealthy, the richest of all the Orientals. He had ten grown children and a massive livestock operation involving thousands of animals. Job was into organic farming and never used steroids or pesticides. His livestock won all the ribbons at the fairs. His horses were the fastest and his camels could spit the furthest. That part may not be true. Everyone was envious of Job, even Satan. So God allowed Satan to test Job. God allowed Job to suffer, to prove that Job's loyalty, love, and respect were genuine. Job lost everything in a very short time. He experienced one tragedy after the other. Satan worked mercilessly to break Job's spirit and faith. There were cattle raids during which Job's workers were brutally slaughtered. There was a terrifying lightning storm. A huge fire tore through, burning up all of Job's grasslands. Enormous flocks of sheep and all those in the vicinity died horrible deaths. All of Job's grown children were crushed when the house they were in collapsed in a deadly wind. All ten died. It was heartbreaking. Then Job developed sores all over his body from head to toe. Job had boils that left him vulnerable to infection and in extreme pain. And if that wasn't enough, instead of sympathy and support, Job received ridicule and judgment from everyone, even his best friends and wife. Everything Job knew and loved was gone. Some suggested that Job must have done something terrible to have such bad karma. Others wondered why Job's God wasn't helping him. He's not a very good God, thought some. What kind of God would let such a good man undergo such hardships for no apparent reason? Questions and accusations flew back and forth. Everyone who knew Job knew him to be an upstanding man, a solid man, a man of the true God. Hadn't he been through enough? Job suffered unimaginable pain and sat in ashes, grieving. He scraped his oozing boils with fragments of pottery while wishing he were dead. 
He simply couldn't endure the pain in his body and the ache in his heart any longer. Death would be a relief. Job cursed the day he was born and genuinely wanted to die. His frame of mind was totally understandable, but Job never considered suicide. Job believed God was in control. He didn't know why this was happening to him, but he knew beyond a doubt that everything was in God's hands. As he sat alone, he continued communicating with someone he absolutely believed was listening. Someone whom he trusted could change his circumstances completely around, should he so choose. Job didn't know why God was taking so long to act, but he never gave up hope. There was a light deep inside Job, a light that could not be extinguished. Despite the constant chipping away of Job's whole life, his livelihood, his family, his very body and mind, by that foul, evil, fallen angel, Satan, white magic prevailed. During this extreme example of human testing, Job, although visibly alone, believed he was not alone. He undeniably proved to be not only sustained but rejuvenated by the supernatural spirit he identified as Jehovah. It is important to note that this human did so, kept his faith, and never gave up hope, despite the reactions of all the other humans around him. And here we are today, still sharing Job's story. That's the legacy God wants for all of us, that regardless of our trials, his light will shine. We are so much further ahead having Job's story to relate to, because now we know that when we are suffering, we are being tested. Job's story has a very happy ending. God's stories always do. J.R.R. Tolkien writes, It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. J.K. Rowling writes, To the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. John 16, verse 32 and 33 reads, Look, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his own house, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that by means of me you may have peace. In the world you are having tribulation, but take courage, I have conquered the world. For more information on this book, or to purchase a copy, check out my website, joeofthewoods.ca.